If you will, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We are on the descent of our summer series on the parables, and we have a very short parable this morning. It's a parable of the leaven and the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, only covers like three verses in the text, but we are going to go ahead and start in Luke chapter 10, because as we see, as we walk through the text, I hope that we'll see that what happens just before Jesus tells his parable is critical for our understanding and application of the parable. And we're going to take a moment this morning. We're going to read the parable. We're going to, we're going to look at it, what it might have been for their story. And then we're going to contemplate what it means for our story. And when I say our story, I mean in specifically what it could mean for Christ's community church, as well as then what it means for my calling as an individual and my story. So if you'll turn to Luke chapter 13, we will read this uh, scene where we see the story of uh, Jesus uh, giving himself over to an act of mercy, compassion, and healing, and then he tells these parables. Luke chapter 13, verse 10. As he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. Now again, I know that there's lots of discussions that we can have over spirit and demonic talk in the New Testament. And we come from a, a, a wide variety of backgrounds in this room and we're all settled under this big tent of our mutual love for Jesus and our desire to be true to him, kind to all people and be the body of Christ in our city and beyond community and beyond so so we have that commonality but we may approach this to this topic a little differently uh, that's for a, a Sunday school class or another sermon all I want to say is these stories work better if you just take them at face value for what the author is initially communicating and then we can maybe get into the nuances when it comes to interpreting and applying the stories but but here what we see is there is a woman who has been under bondage of a dark force for 18 years of her life. We're not told whether or not she's gone to doctors and healers. We're not told what she did about this. We're just giving that one simple detail that this is a woman who has been oppressed by dark forces or by the work of the enemy for 18 years of her life. And then we're told a further description. We're told that she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, woman, you were free of your disability. Then he laid his hands on her and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. Now, again, as we take the details of this passage as they're presented to us, this is a little different than some of the other healing miracles. Oftentimes, in the stories of a healing miracle, there is an exchange with Jesus and there is a request for the healing or a request for prayer. And that's not here. In fact, it almost reads as though she really wasn't necessarily 
moving up to Jesus in the synagogue saying, hey, will you perform a miracle on me? It is almost as if this woman comes into the synagogue after having been afflicted by a dark spirit for 18 years, so much so that it was impacting her physically, says that she was crooked and couldn't even stand straight up. She's in the synagogue, and Jesus, without prompting from her, just simply sees a woman in bondage. And because of that, he takes the initiative to speak this authoritative word of healing on her. And then he takes a moment then to lay his hands on her and to restore her physically. And after that, it says that the miracle is instantaneous. The moment he touches her, this woman straightens up. And when she does, she begins to praise God. Verse 14, but the leader of the synagogue Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Now, this is very important. This man was unmoved, not only by an act of mercy and compassion, which oftentimes is moving in and of itself, but this particular act of mercy and compassion resulted in quite a profound miracle right before their eyes. But his commitment to propriety and tradition of the way, of the, how he understood the way things ought to be done was so powerful that he could not even exercise a moment of awe when God was moving right in front of his eyes. He couldn't even exercise a moment of joy on behalf of this sister that had been delivered from this dark oppression. What we're told is the moment he sees compassion in action, his first question is, was it proper? And his answer is no. And so he is angry. He is indignant. It is a foolish thing to think that all we need is the power of God and compassion in order to move people. It will move some people. But if we are bound and blinded by ideology, then we see everything through a lens of ideology. That ideology might determine that this act of compassion isn't, in fact, inspirational. It seems inappropriate. And to this leader, it certainly seemed inappropriate. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, there are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? It's a rhetorical question because the answer would have been, yes, of course we do. Thus, the next statement. Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for eight years 
Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he had said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated. But the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things he was doing. He said, therefore. Remember uh, Hermeneutics 101? When you see a therefore, before you interpret, you ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. So it's really important that we understand that what just took place is connected to Jesus' motive in speaking this parable. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what can I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the sky nested in its branches. Again, he said, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just bow before you humbly. We submit ourselves to you and to your wisdom. And we pray that as we open up the scriptures and we meditate and we reason together, that where appropriate, you would challenge us. Where appropriate, you would comfort us. And when appropriate, that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and draw us to your truth. And if need be, give us the mercy to respond with a repentant heart so that we can course correct as we seek to continue to be true to Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Now this I love, love, love. In fact, I find these, these two brief parables some of the most encouraging in all of Jesus' teaching. The, it's not complicated, really, what Jesus is communicating. Now, it may be nuanced because of the context, but it's not complicated at all. It's simply the point of, is this, the mustard seed parable compares the size of the mustard seed to the size of the tree into which it grows. And there's some arguments of whether or not you can call a mustard tree a tree. Uh, some of them just look like really, really large shrubs. But what is characteristic of them, even though they're not all necessarily super tall, is they are all very wide, very, very thick with multiple branches. And, and what Jesus is simply illustrating is that that fruit is a result of a teeny, tiny mustard seed. That little seed, once the farmer is responsible to put it into the ground and willing to do the work of caring for it while resting and trusting on God to do his work of the miracle of life that happens underneath the ground and the bringing of the rains. And then, and then, and then before long, you see evidence of the work cropping up out of the ground. That began with that little seed. And a modern example for us Oklahomans is to think of all the oak trees that we see. The oak trees in Oklahoma are enormous. 
Some of us have built tire swings around oak trees. Some of us have built tree houses in oak trees. Oak trees are strong and magnificent, and yet if you compare them to the size of an acorn, you recognize the miracle in God's genius. These enormous expressions of fruit come from the smallest of sources. And yet that small source has within it the potential already to be the fruit. The little bitty mustard seed already carries the, 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 the potential for the mustard tree. The little acorn already carries within it the potential to be a mighty oak tree. And so Jesus is creating this comparison. The mustard seed would have been among the smallest, but the tree grows wide with expansive branches that can serve as shelter for birds. Now, before we apply what is the principle of the parable, let's ask ourselves some theological questions. And I think the first place of application isn't our faith. But oftentimes, and we will talk about that in just a few minutes, but oftentimes we read this story because we're taught to immediately to ask the question of what does it mean for my story? Then we come from that, this idea that, well, Jesus is teaching about faith here. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying it's incomplete. He, he certainly is probably teaching about faith. And he's taught about this in other places, how the smallness of our faith, once it's placed into God's grace and power, can, can yield fruit well beyond the size of the original faith. And, and he talks about being of little faith and having more faith. But the first line of interpretation of the mustard seed is not that the mustard seed represents our faith. Think about the story that preceded the parables. The very first place of interpretation of the mustard seed and the leaven is this. The mustard seed is Jesus. The leaven is Jesus. His work, his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. So the mustard seed is Jesus. And, and, and one of the things that's important about this parable to this particular group of people, because remember, this is a group of people who are oppressed by a foreign nation. They are consistently creating these moments of zealous revolt and rebellion. And oftentimes it has to be squashed and put down as quickly as possible because their zeal for their desire for their liberation is so intense that they were a thorn in the Roman side. In fact, that's why the Romans gave them their own temple, their own governor, and encouraged them to continue to practice their religion in hopes that it would uh, have an impact on the constant resistance that they were experiencing from this particular group of people. Well, this particular group of people who are, who are occupied by a foreign nation and who have cultivated this zeal, this second temple zeal for the coming of the Messiah who would come and rescue them and destroy their enemies... Can you imagine what would have gone through their mind if they were sitting in church and they saw a man who had power over dark spirits and had power over physical disease? 
Can you imagine what they would have been thinking? What would you have been thinking if you were among them? Here's our guy. Who can beat this man? This is the secret weapon. If this were an Avengers movie, it would be like seeing the Hulk or Thor on display. And, and that's our secret weapon. We can't lose. And, and if you look at the Gospels, there are many moments in the Gospels where the crowd tries to do exactly that. And Jesus is always resisting their desire for a leader and a deliverer who will utilize violence to throw off the oppressor. And so even in this story of the mustard seed and the leaven, Jesus is communicating something about the nature of his kingdom. It would be one thing if he compared the kingdom to the full-grown mustard tree. Or one thing if he had compared the kingdom to the loaf of bread that it had been completely saturated by the leaven, but he doesn't compare himself to the loaf or to the tree, but to the seed and to the leaven. Because this is how his kingdom operates. The new, Jesus's kingdom will not be established by physical force or political power. Now that might be a little uncomfortable for me because I was raised in Republican-only moral majority evangelical Christianity. I was discipled with the belief that the way that God's movement would move forward in America is by taking over positions of power in society. I was taught that faithful Christian discipleship meant voting one particular way only, having only one opinion about complex social issues, and working very hard to make sure that the person who represented my faith ideology was in office. It didn't count if they were Catholic. It didn't count if they were from the United Church of Christ. It only counted if they were conservative evangelicals, but I was raised to put my faith in Christians changing the world for God via the strength of political power. I won't say who, but in 2016, I watched a candidate seduce, date, and marry the evangelical movement in America. And one of the ways, and one of the things that sent chills down my spine was when I watched on a rally him address evangelicals in America and say to them, you've lost your power in this nation, but I will give you your power back. And we adored him for it. We even pretended that he represented our faith so that we could justify the backing of someone who would finally give us our power. Now, this may seem like I'm being political. I assure you I am not. 
What I am saying is that any time the people of God, regardless of the candidate's politics, start to put their faith in God's will being accomplished through the course of political power, that movement is toxic and it's lost its revelation of the almighty sovereign God who does whatever he wants in heaven and whose will cannot be thwarted. They've lost confidence in that God. And this story is Jesus' reminder to the same type of impulse among this first century crowd of people. Then, because the new world order of the kingdom of Jesus will be established through small, hidden, consistent actions of healing and mercy. What grieves me most about that political statement I made earlier is that in order to believe a candidate will give you back your power, you have to first believe you lost something that you never lost. You always had the power to transform America. We were just mistaken about how that manifested. It isn't through speeches in the arm of the flesh. It's in recognizing we're mustard seeds and we're willing to go into the ground in hiddenness and perform small, imperceptible acts of healing and mercy. Thank you. That is what Jesus is communicating about the nature of his kingdom. The new world order of the kingdom of Jesus will be established through small, hidden, and consistent actions of healing and mercy. Then the second parable emphasizes the power of leaven in the hands of a person. And this is important for what Jesus, I mean, Jesus could use whatever he wanted to illustrate these points. And what, he consistently makes the heroes of his story those that we would not have assumed were the heroes of the story. He, if you look back at his parables, and I've tried to highlight it through the book of Luke or even through this idea of the parables every time he does it because he so consistently chooses the wrong people as the heroes of his story. And in the second parable, he emphasizes the power of leaven in the hands of a person who would have been considered on the lower end of the social hierarchy. A woman in front of an oven in a kitchen. But he says at a little leaven that this woman works into the dough will eventually infiltrate and transform 50 pounds of flour. Likewise, the work of Jesus will undo the damage caused by sin, Satan, and sickness until the whole world is transformed and put right. That's what we are participating in. What we simply have to discern is what's the movement of the leaven in our generation? In what stage of growth is this mustard seed in our generation? Because the goal that will not fail is the eventual infiltration and transformation and recreation of the world that God has made. It will all eventually be put right. And if you give yourself over 
to the movement of the spirit of putting things right in the world, then you are literally living the future in the present because that's where this whole thing is headed. Thus the healing of the woman is an act that exemplifies the way that Jesus will transform the world. And if the healing of the woman is an example of the way Jesus will transform the world, then we could also say it this way, the healing of the woman is the way the body of Christ transforms the world. The intent and focus of the mind and body of Christ has not been divorced from this story. In fact, Professor Joel Green in his commentary, big, big, thick, great commentary, um, three-fourths of which I didn't understand, uh, had this to say. Set in relation to the healing episode of verses 10 through 17, this parable declares that satanic domination is being repelled and the kingdom of God is made present in even such seemingly inconsequential acts as the restoration of an ill woman who lived on the margins of society. When a person that the majority doesn't really notice or care about is healed and touched by the mercy and grace of God, you can be assured that the Spirit is working to transform the world. That is the fruit that matters to God. That is the fruit that mattered to Jesus. That is the fruit that should be the priority of the contemporary body of Christ in the world. This is our cue. This is our direction. The ever-present kingdom of God is made visible through small, quiet acts of mercy and compassion. And here's what's great. You don't have to even feel in a good mood or feel spiritual to participate. You simply have to choose to consistently align yourself with the values and the life of Christ within, regardless of where your emotional, emotional state may be in any given moment. Sometimes you'll feel really good about it. Sometimes you'll high five. Sometimes you'll put a praise report in your journal. But other times it'll be inconvenient. It'll be frustrating. And you'll be called upon to show mercy to those whom you do not believe deserve it. And yet, this is still the way the kingdom of God grows, expands, manifests, and transformed the world. Let's say it one more time just for kicks and giggles. The ever-present kingdom of God is made visible through small, quiet acts of mercy and compassion. The kingdom may seem to begin small, but its growth is definite, consistent, and aggressive from one generation to the next. The kingdom grows through one act of mercy at a time. Now, as we think about those principles, 
for the next 10 minutes or so, let's think together about the way in which we might be called to respond to those principles, the way in which we might apply the wisdom of Scripture here in this regard. And there are two areas of application that I want us to consider this morning. Number one is your soul, and number two is your calling. And what I want to encourage you to do is potentially take a moment to think a little differently about how you tend for the health of your tend the health of your soul and about how you consider what it means to have received a calling from God that is your call to be part of this movement of compassion, mercy, and restoration that transforms the world. Number one, your soul. What I would encourage you to consider, now again, this is a sermon, you know, 30-minute sermon if you're lucky, 45-minute if you're not, but nonetheless, somewhere between 20 and 45 minutes, there is the opportunity to think about how we respond. And so it's actually a short amount of time. I can't say everything that needs to be said on any given particular topic in a half hour. So don't get hung up on what I'm not saying, okay? So if your mind goes, are you saying? The answer is no. I'm just saying what I'm saying. I'm not saying something deviously secret in addition to that. I'm just saying what I'm saying. So, so when it comes to your soul, I would encourage you, if this is the right season for you to respond to this bit, bit of wisdom, to begin asking God to change you rather than your circumstance. But one of the frustrating and the heartbreaking realities, I was just talking to, I was talking to my wife this week, and I was just doing some internal work, and I realized you know, one of the things that always makes it hard to kind of re-up your energy to, like, join God in what he's doing and the work of God is that, for me, this may not be your story, but for me, it was important for me to acknowledge the majority of the things I've believed and asked God for have never happened. Hope you're all encouraged. Go home. We'll see you next week. I wish that weren't the truth I was presenting to you. I wish I was giving you the secrets of why my faith has always worked and my prayers are so powerful. There'll be nobody in my prayer line today. Most of it never happened. Now, some of it was better. I know that's the end story that I'm supposed to tell to make that statement okay. But at this point in my journey, there's a lot of it that still seems like it was worse. I do have faith that one day I might have a different perspective. Don't misunderstand me. But I still need to be honest about where I am standing right here. Sometimes it's gotten worse. Sometimes it hasn't happened. And sometimes I've been surprised, and it has. Now, that is not a reflection on God or his faithfulness. It's a reflection on me and how I process my journey. But it's important for me to stop for a moment and say that and then realize, put on a different lens. But every disappointment made me stronger. It made me more resilient. It gave me more courage. 
And when I realized at some point my prayer was a form of laziness that I use as an excuse to not take responsibility for my life. And in that moment, I matured as a human being. And I realize that all of that hardship has empowered my character. So maybe it's wrong to think or it's misguided to think that prayer is primarily for changing the outside circumstance. Maybe what prayer is about is allowing God to walk with you through your suffering because that's what the incarnation teaches us. That's the way God chooses to heal us. Not to take it away, but to enter it with us and to walk with us, not to stand above it and tell us just keep praying, but to walk with us, to shed the tears with us, to feel the heartbreak with us, to wrestle with the rage and anger for a decade, if that's what we need to do. But he walks with us because rather than transforming the circumstance to make it more convenient, maybe he is transforming us. Maybe there's a diamond there that you just don't have a clue exists, but he does. And he knows exactly how to bring it about. So in your soul, instead of focusing on these outer things that cause you anxiety, begin to ask God to change you rather than your circumstance. Instead of, quote, praying about a frightening obstacle, ask God to give you courage. Instead of, quote, praying slash worrying about a confusing situation, ask God to give you wisdom. Instead of asking God to change someone else, consider asking him to increase your love, patience, and compassion. Now, I am not saying God doesn't change people. I'm not saying that God doesn't change circumstances. I am not saying that God is not presently at work in the events of our world and he can interrupt and create miraculous intervention. I believe all those things. But what I'm saying is there may be a narrative that's more consistent and deeper, which is God is interested in transforming you so that you actually become the force of redemption that acts upon those obstacles. Maybe that was his plan all along. These obstacles that can be discouraging may just be what you need to grow and mature. The obstacle is not a sign to retreat, but rather to advance. The obstacle is the way. Because awareness of these hidden victories increases your confidence in God's consistent faithfulness to you, thus expanding the kingdom atmosphere of your heart. You begin to create a history of victorious transformation in your walk with God. And after 20 years of that, the confidence that builds up in your gut to know God has been faithful to me in the past. I know he will be faithful to me in the future and I rest in his faithfulness in this moment. That happens by cultivating an awareness of those hidden victories. Now, if you're unsure what to do about this, I have a very simple advice. Find out what spiritually healthy people are doing and practice their practice. You may 
change some of that. You may practice their practice and realize it's not for you, but one of the things that we have to do to counteract this kind of grip hold of individualism that touches our hearts as contemporary Americans is to have the humility to say, I need a teacher. And so you pray. If you don't see one in your immediate circle, you begin to pray. Ask God to bring you in contact with a teacher, with a mentor, and look at the fruit of people's lives. Not what they know, what, not what they can say, but the fruit of their lives. If they have good doctrine, but their wife is lonely, don't follow those people. If they have all the, the, the theological ducks in the row, but their children are far from them and they've chosen to shun them, I'm not talking about looking to those people. I'm talking about the fruit of the people that although life may be disappointing, maybe their kids haven't made choices they want to make, maybe they're married to someone who is still chooses to be difficult, and yet they have peace and they can consistently show mercy, they can consistently express love and patience and forgiveness, they can be present for people, find those people and find out what they do. And consider practicing their practice until you can take those training wheels off and soar on your own practice and then you will be available for someone else to learn to practice your practice. You know, Paul had the audacity to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is not a statement of pride. And in fact, I would say it's sinful to shriek away from that calling. To shrink away from that is just to make an excuse for my own apathy and laziness. We should be able to stand up, look the people who follow us in the eye and say, you would do well to follow me as I follow Christ. I, I can be an in-flesh example of what it looks like to be faithful to Christ, kind to all men, and be the body of Christ in our community and beyond. That's what we're aspiring to. So first you're sowed, and then finally you're calling. Responding to the needs of which you are aware is the surest way of discovering the work God has prepared for you. And I'm not talking about, I mean, there's too much pressure for us to get our money, our existential satisfaction, and our sense of service to the community all through our job. I'm not talking about that. For some of us, for most of us, our job is how we keep the lights on. It doesn't have to be the existential satisfaction of your soul. It hasn't, doesn't have to be the thing that defines you. It doesn't, you're not doing it wrong if you're not just excited to get up and go to work every day. And for some reason, there's this weird myth in contemporary America that that's what jobs are supposed to do. Now, if we're lucky, sometimes our job inches closer to our vocation and our calling. And if that's you, great, more power to you. I am grateful that you get to experience that. But I think it is important because we put the false pressure on ourselves to recognize your job does, is not your calling. I, I am talking about something that's deeper than what you do in order to make your money. And the surest way to discover that is to begin responding to the needs that you see. 
I know you're frustrated about the fact that the rest of us don't see the same need that you see, but I promise you there are dozens that you're also overlooking that you don't notice. Why? Because the Spirit's not calling you to respond to those needs. He is calling you to respond to the needs that you see, the needs that agitate you, the needs that create energy in you. Acting on your passion is the means through which you discover how God intends to establish his kingdom in and through you. What I want to suggest, but again, you all chose to drive here this morning knowing that I'm a death coach. Consider the possibility that living your life according to unrealistic vision, which is the wisdom of self-improvement and success, might be keeping you sidelined from your work of the kingdom while you're daydreaming. What if we gave one another the permission, maybe just for a month, to not worry about a powerful vision of transformation. What if you just experimented with ceasing to worry about macro vision, which is the big vision for your life and ministry, and instead you focus on micro vision? Because I think that the parable of the leaven and the seed says the power of God moves through the micro, not the macro. We all want to see the tree. We all want to eat the loaf of bread. And that's what we fixate our time and attention on. But, but what if the goal isn't to be fixated on the goal, but rather to pay attention to the micro movement that you get to contribute to? And you begin to focus on micro vision. These parables remind us that God's chosen means of transformation is expressed in micro-movements. Sorry, the inner youth pastors coming up in me. Everyone say micro-movements. Thank you. Now, all of you rebellious eights who refuse to say it just because I said it, you can choose to say it on your own on your way home. When we stop chasing the spectacular and invest in the significant, we will grow into a force of redemption in the communities in which we have been planted. I suggest to you, would you go ahead and put that back up just a little bit longer? And I'm only saying that because I'm seeing the phones that are, and then the sad faces whenever it went away. Thank you. The enemy of the significant isn't sin. The enemy of the significant is our preoccupation with the unrealistic spectacular. Maybe we could adjust that. Maybe we could bring it down on a workable playing field. I'm going to share with you a passage of Scripture that growing up I had never, I mean, I'm assuming I've never read it, Maybe I did and just didn't pay attention, but I was quite shocked, offended, 
and ultimately encouraged by the truth of this passage. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write you. Now, now remember, this is the first thing he's saying. You guys have got this figured out. There are so many in my churches that I'm trying to help them understand the power of love. Those Corinthians think that as long as they speak in tongue, perform miracles, and prophesy, that they are where God's at. I had to remind them that means nothing unless there's love. But I'm grateful because you Thessalonians have figured it out. You have understood brotherly love. Now, let me commend you about how you did that. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. Do you see this? We don't graduate from love. That's the thing. I've got love down. Now I'm going to be right about all the theology. I mean, look, grow in your theology. Get rid of toxic ideas about God. Cultivate healthy views of God. I'm all for that. But ultimately, you never graduate from love. Once you've mastered love, the next class is do it more. Love more. And so he says to them, the entire region of Macedonia, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, verse 11. How are they loving? Look at this. To seek to lead a quiet life. To mind your own business. And to work with your own hands as we commanded you. You imagine the revival in contemporary Protestant evangelical America if we just followed the first two? We're just going to be quiet and mind our own business. Well, you cowards, you must be gripped by the fear of man. You must not care about the, 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 the uh, will of God, the work of God. Where'd you get an idea like that? From the scriptures. First Thessalonians calls me to make it my ambition to be quiet and mind my own business. To work with my hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Question. How did the Thessalonians love the entire region of Macedonia? By leading a quiet life by minding their own business and working with their hands. How will Christ's community love the entire county of Carter or the region of Southern Oklahoma? By being willing to lead quiet lives, to mind our own business, and to do work with our hands. That's my big vision for the church. <laughs> Let's transform the world by being quiet and minding our own business and taking responsibility for our lives and working with our hands. That doesn't sound like much, but in a culture that is saturated with loud, loud opinions, 
and very well nuanced opinions about the lives of others. In that culture, being quiet and minding your own business might start a revival. It, it might transform the culture. So would you all stand as the worship team comes up? We're gonna take a moment this morning and we're gonna take common communion together, which means we will come uh, down the aisle in our regular way, that back corner first, that back corner first, and this middle corner first. Come down through and receive the elements. The only thing different is we ask you to consider holding on to those elements until the end of the song, and I'll come up and lead us, and we will take it uh, as a unit. So as we are singing and worshiping, as you're taking your time to move your body and come up to the front, I also ask that you would be prayerful. And here are the two questions that I would challenge you or encourage you to have on your heart. Number one, what do you need to ask God to change or mature in your character? What do you need? Now, it's better if you just listen to the quietness of your heart. If you really can't hear a thing, ask your partner, your spouse, they will let you know. <laughs> but you might be less inclined to respond. It's a little easier if you listen to the Spirit and let Him speak to you. What is it about your character that He's calling you to ask Him to change? Number two, what is the Holy Spirit leading you to do in response to the need that you see? I'll give you a hint. Your initial response to it might have been to talk to someone else who ought to meet it. Let's go back a step or two. And let's just let you stand in front of the need that you see before you talk to anyone else about it and say, Holy Spirit, is there anything that I could do? It seems so big. And the Spirit may say, don't worry about the big result. That's macro vision. Worry about the micro vision. And the micro vision is just discerning the very next step and then acting in obedience. And then you micro vision your request for the step after that. 